0: Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China.
1: The success of China in economic development and poverty reduction has led countries globally to look for ways to emulate China's success. The Chinese government itself actively promotes its form of state capitalism as the China model, as an alternative for Western liberal democracy. But increased Chinese engagement has also led to criticism from neighboring countries. In the wake of big state-led projects, various predatory and often illegal activities like online gambling or real estate speculation have sprung up. My name is Johannes heller and to talk about these informal actors and activities in Chinese overseas engagement... I'm joined by Matt Fershen, Head of Global China Research at Merix. Welcome to the podcast, Matt.
0: Hello, Johannes. Thanks for having me. In a recent
1: book chapter focusing on China's engagement in Southeast Asia, you've wrote about what you called the two faces of the China model. Could you go into detail what you mean by this?
0: Yeah, I think over the last 10 years or so, the general consensus or understanding of how the relationship between China's government and economy works is often described as a, a, as a China model that is one in which the state dominates. So state capitalism has really become the key term here, which just highlights that there is a very close relationship uh, between the government and the economy and that the government sets out priorities for the economy and controls many of the key institutions of uh, banks as as well as enterprises within the Chinese economy uh, but what I point out in the paper is that there has always been a, a, a long counter side or other side of this, which is there's a large private sector, uh, there is a, a major component of the domestic Chinese economy, uh, which isn't state driven. So if you look at GDP output, for example, lots of estimates say that uh, two thirds of the Chinese economy is not Um, state-driven. So I point out that there is this balance. It's often overlooked uh, that there is a major component of the Chinese economy domestically uh, that isn't necessarily a good fit with this idea of state capitalism and that increasingly we need to understand the foreign components of this too. So basically, the non-state components of China's overseas behavior uh, are also important. So those are the, the two faces that I'm talking about in the chapter. When we talk
1: about informal actors, should we imagine individuals or organizations, and uh, what role do they play?
0: Yeah, so what I really emphasize here uh, in the in the paper, but also in previous work of mine, is that um, as part of what we might consider the, the non-state component of the Chinese economy, there's also a certain set of actors and activities that we can think of as part of the informal economy and in the paper. And in general, I put quotation marks around that because it's often a a bit of a fuzzy concept. Uh, But it's generally kinds of activities that are somewhere in between the legal and the illegal, the regulated and the unregulated, uh, so that can include a variety of actors. It can even include official actors who sort of go outside the bounds uh, of the rules or, or, or laws. But it's often smaller private actors uh, or companies or entrepreneurs. Uh, so it's really a, a range of different kinds of entrepreneurial business-related activities, um, and and it's more the the this sort of space between what is legal and illegal the kind of gray area you know the informal economy has often been thought of or explained as a sort of gray economy so it's this in-between area which is a it's a bit fuzzy uh, but that also makes it uh, a challenge to to regulate. In your book chapter you're looking at Southeast Asia especially
1: Myanmar Cambodia and Vietnam. Could you illustrate this gray area activity
0: with some examples from your fieldwork? Sure. And let me just take a step back and say a few things about the domestic side, first of all. um, So some examples of informal activities that I have researched in the past include street vendors, um, the sort of... uh, informal, uh, financial markets, and then the sort of the government entities that try to regulate them. So a lot of my research previously was on, on the Chungwan or this police unit that is formally charged with, with regulating them. So in my work on Southeast Asia, uh, what I noticed in some of the field work that I did in 2019 and uh, early 2020 before the coronavirus, uh, was that there were a variety of actors activities going on, um, in Southeast Asian countries that reflected some of these informal activities that I also saw domestically. So, for example, in Cambodia, you see in Sihanoukville, a variety of online gambling activities, speculative real estate activities. So uh, what you could consider to be entrepreneurial activities by individuals or small groups. Uh, of chinese investors but that skirted the line between what was legal and illegal so some of these activities like the gambling activities for example are illegal in china but legal in Cambodia, but the market is still back in China. So there's a crossover uh, between these two. And then this, the speculative real estate activities uh, are also part of this. So you can get Chinese companies, for instance, a Chengdu real estate company, uh, hypothetically, that also then sells real estate in Phnom Penh. Uh, but really, there's no fundamental basis for this. A lot of it is speculative and taps into the Cambodian dollarized economy. For example. And there are similar variations of this uh, in Myanmar, Uh, in Vietnam. It looked, uh, it took the form more of, it, it was a little bit more formal in the sense that these were big coal energy investments, uh, but they were also skirting the line uh, between what was legal and illegal in in Vietnam. So you saw different kinds of activities in different countries, but again, a lot of it sort of somewhere between what was legal and illegal, regulated and and unregulated. So there are estimates about
1: the size of grey zone activities for domestic economy. If we look at Southeast Asia, do you think the ratio to official activities is the same? Can you
0: Put a number on it? It's a great question. And this is always something that was a challenge of doing this research when I did it looking at the domestic economy in China for many years is that it's just by its very nature difficult to come up with, with numbers. Um, so I would say, I think it's the, the important fact is that, first of all, this is very little discussed, I think, in the literature about China's engagement. With these countries in Southeast Asia or elsewhere, especially BRI-related activities. So, you know, a lot of the point that I'm trying to make in the in the chapter is that everyone is focused on the behavior of China's banks, uh, its state-owned banks or its state-owned enterprises, and all the the issues associated with them. But when I went and talked to people in Cambodia, Vietnam, and Myanmar. The immediate reaction was, yes, we, we have an understanding and we have some concern about those issues, but it's all of these other sort of speculative activities that are highly disruptive. So it's difficult to put a a number on it exactly. Although I think, you know, this was the first stage of my research on this and I want to do more. Um, so I think you could do that. Uh, but it, but it's a challenge because so much of it again is in this area that's semi-legal or, um, and, and, and unregulated. So it requires a lot of field work of talking to people on the ground. But what was very clear uh, was that many different actors, including government officials, but NGOs um, and just people in various communities in these countries were affected or e- maybe even more affected by some of these small scale, informal, illicit sometimes activities than they were by the big infrastructure projects or the big loans. You
1: already mentioned that informal actors and activities are fuzzy terms. Um, They are difficult to differentiate from official activities or state actors. But if possible, could you shine a light on the relationship between state and informal actors? Or or is there kind of a continuum of actors and activities?
0: Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great question and it's one I've been thinking about for at least 15 years because this was the topic of my my PhD dissertation uh that I did in it was all domestically focused on on China and so I spent a lot of time thinking about this concept of of informality which is really uh, much more prominent in studies of the political economy of developing countries say in Latin America or Africa or or the Middle East and in those places, you have the sort of formal, formally regulated elements of the economy. For example, there are jobs that have formal labor provisions, um, uh, you know, that come with health care, all of these kinds of, of things that distinguish the formal from the informal. But in China, it's much more of a of a gray zone, and in in other developing countries, often what you see is sort of area, entire uh, geographic areas, maybe urban areas, where the state really isn't very present, um, and residents have to find their own drinking water and electricity and come up with all these things that would normally be provided by the state. In China, it works fairly differently in that sense. You don't get these sort of completely unregulated areas of the economy. But what you get are these kind of gray zones and you get a variety of activities, including like labor work, um, on construction projects. A lot of it, at least domestically in China, was focused on, uh, migrant labor in urban areas. And as you know, this has a lot of crossover with, um, with hukou. So you can be a, a migrant from a rural area to an urban area, and you can be working on a construction site, but you don't get the formal provisions that someone who has a WHO code does. Um, and then the other side of this, at least domestically in China, is that you have these, um, you have a lot of government oversight over these kinds of activities say selling um, knockoff uh, DVDs. This is now a, a dated kind of activity or cosmetic products on the street. Well, that's not officially allowed, but if you give us a bribe, then we'll let you do it anyway. Um, so what you see, this sort of crossover between officially allowed or, um, or illegal kinds of activities that get negotiated on a day-to-day basis. Now, in the cases I was looking at in Southeast Asia, this plays out slightly differently. So you get these large projects, which are state to state projects, like the Sihanoukville project in Cambodia, which is a combination port and special economic zone. So you have an officially, <clears throat> um, an official BRI project that is state to state, but in the cracks of that, then you get these sort of speculative real estate and online gambling activities. The same is true in Myanmar. You get state-supported projects, some of them port projects, pipeline projects, um, dam projects. So you have these state-led elements, but then on top of that, you get these speculative activities. So the way I describe it in the chapter, at least in the case of of Cambodia and Myanmar, is that you have these high-level state-to-state relations and projects that then seem to create an opening for this broader type of informal or illicit activities, which are much more difficult to regulate.
1: I find it hard to imagine that unconnected individuals would go to another country and become speculative real estate investors. Are these informal actors well connected to similar ones in China? Are they even kind of emissaries from official or unofficial Chinese organizations? Or are many of them really just opportunists and entrepreneurs acting on their own?
0: Well, that's a, it's a great question. I think the honest answer is this is what I want to do for next steps. And I think the, if, if when I'm able to do this kind of research again, this is exactly the, the, the things, the set of things that I would like to, to learn more about. But I can say a few things uh, about them. First of all, there's a set of activities, especially border areas where you get exactly this kind of behavior for hundreds of years, if not longer. Um, So the border between Myanmar and China is notorious um, for illicit trade in jade, in timber, in drugs. And you get people who for a very long time have created networks where the border is in some ways not really that clear of a barrier and you get lots of deal-making with officials on both sides or people are bribed. Um, there are ways in which people are very entrepreneurial and the sort of rules and the borders. It's not that they don't count, but they are clearly porous. Um, so this is, this is one element where we can see a lot of, um, just trade patterns for all kinds of activities and goods, some, some clearly just illegal, but many of them drawn by demand from, from inside of China itself. Maybe the clearest example of this would be, would be jade trade. Um, so you have some of those kinds of activities where you can sort of trace back the, the actors and the connections and many of them actually function on, on the border itself. Um, there are, there are basically criminal networks. At play uh, in some of these activities, uh, especially when it comes to fully illegal activities like gambling, but also also drugs. And this apparently was much of the concern in the shutdown of some of these online gambling activities. In Cambodia, that was a sort of cooperative venture between both Chinese officials and Cambodian officials, and then also in Myanmar. And the Myanmar case uh, really blew up because some of the speculators on the Myanmar side, which had connections to to China, they claimed that their project was a BRI project. And then when it became very apparent uh, that there was criticism from all sides and this was speculative illegal activity... Then eventually the Myanmar government uh, decried this activity and then the Chinese government had to come in and say, this is not officially a BRI project, we disavow this. And these actors aren't even Chinese, but their connections to China through criminal networks were were fairly well established. So it gets really messy and I think a lot of the work sort of trace the connections uh, between groups and individuals, types of activity, the gambling, the real estate speculation, Um illicit money flows all of that is the kind of work that requires more research
1: this is Merricks experts you're listening to my conversation on informal actors in chinese foreign engagements with matt fashion head of global china research at merix you just brought up an example of how the Chinese government had to disavow a project that had labeled itself as part of the BRI. This begs the question, are these informal activities an asset or a challenge to Chinese control?
0: This is the core question, I think, with informality in general. If you look at the broader literature and and realities of informality in other developing country settings, there's this tension between basically the way in which it's seen by some as entrepreneurial uh, activities that are done by enterprising individuals who work within an a system where they don't have many other opportunities, so they go out and they find those opportunities for themselves. And then the other side of it is they are exploited or they are engaging in basically criminal or harmful activities. So you see this balance in a lot of the descriptions and understandings of informality in general. I would say this is also the case domestically in China. That lots of the kind of what I think of as wild west economic activities that you see in China and have seen over the last 30 or 40 years. Basically, the government unleashed these kinds of market elements into the economy back in at least, you know, in the, in the eighties and even earlier. And to the extent that they're seen as contributing to economic growth, uh, employment opportunities, then it's okay. But when they start to blend into illegal activities that are harmful or seen as disorderly, then you have have a problem. And, and it's often in the eye of the beholder or an activity that's okay today, tomorrow becomes a problem. So I think this is an area that, especially as some of these activities have increased and become more prominent in terms of their impact in some of China's neighbors, but I think you would also see this in Africa and Latin America as, as well, um, that there is a, a problem in terms of who in China actually understands what's going on with these activities and then is able to regulate them, but it's also a host country issue. So these activities and these actors by their very nature in many ways are sort of skirting the rules or trying to remain under the radar or they try to make it in the interests of officials to look the other way. So I would say in general, if we're looking at this balance between sort of entrepreneurial income, employment, growth kinds of activities – um, versus some of their more deleterious effects in terms of governance, I would say it's tipped in on the side of some of the more harmful, unregulated aspects. And I think this is clearly an area where the Chinese government at many different levels, um, but also host governments, need to understand it better and, and regulate it better. It's basically a lot of unregulated activities uh, that really need to be looked at much more carefully.
1: Why do you think this has not happened yet? Is it just too complicated and time-intensive to regulate, or are there people with an interest that these activities remain unregulated?
0: I always come back to the domestic side. You can ask the same question of, you know, why why all the informal activities that I saw when I was doing my research there, including street vendors, uh, many other kinds of activities. In part, it was because... At least domestically, the government for a long period of time just wanted people to have economic opportunities. And the government had gotten out of the business of providing most of those opportunities through, through state employment. So there was a willingness to often allow many different kinds of activities that somehow skirted the, the law just because they provided opportunities for people. And I think, just the size of the the population of people who are engaging in these activities um, is part of it. You know, border areas are notoriously and historically difficult to to monitor monitor and then you have to look at the countries the host countries themselves the ones i was looking at here this is really most prominent in the way i'm describing these sort of illicit unregulated activities they're more prominent in places like Cambodia and Myanmar and i would guess probably also Laos than they are in Vietnam Vietnam controls this much better and this is there's a there's an element um of just governance abilities uh, in these countries so Cambodia um has many challenges in terms of governance of these kinds of activities, and the same is true in Myanmar. And then the other thing on top of this all is many of these activities are carried out by overseas Chinese communities, so Huaqiao communities, that for a long time have had these sort of informal connections between mainland China and places in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. So they just have their own networks. Um, that can sort of skirt the regulations or officials or work with them in a way that lets them do what they want. All of that. So the size of it, the, the difficulty of like very long borders. Um, and the idea that in some ways, I think both Chinese officials and probably officials in some of these countries in Southeast Asia, they're they're they look the other way or they see these activities as as part of uh, you know opportunities for people to provide income for themselves the problem is then again when it becomes so disruptive um that it then creates disorder or chaos and that's always the fear on the chinese side and i think it's it's increasingly a concern in in the countries in southeast asia that i looked at as well
1: is there anything that the chinese side can do apart from stricter controls
0: I think they need to understand the phenomenon better. Uh, I think I, what I see is just a lot of unregulated activities. Uh, I think they need to better understand the flows of people and funds, um, the fact that much of the activity itself is driven by Chinese demand, whether that's for gambling or teak or drugs, um, some of those more illicit activities – or the fact that there is a large flow of money going from, from China to speculative activities in Cambodia has something to do with capital controls on the Chinese side. So there's a lot, I think, that the Chinese side could do. Um, I'm not sure this is really something that is probably best dealt with in Beijing. It's probably better dealt with by provincial governments – um, or even municipal governments in border areas that are paying attention to some of these activities and, and working to be, ba- to first of all understand what these flows are like, to understand the potentially really disruptive, um, outcomes in some of these countries, and then work with a range of government officials. And I mean, this is where it gets tricky because a lot of those who understand some of these Uh, Outcomes the best are non-governmental organizations in Southeast Asian countries, but the Chinese government has become increasingly wary uh, of interacting with them. It has cracked down on the ability of Chinese NGOs who want to ensure that outbound Chinese finance or investment um, is sustainable. It's just become much more difficult to actually understand these flows when you don't allow for more interaction between non-government organizations who are really trying to address some of these issues.
1: What impact and implications do these activities have on Europe? What does it, for example, mean for Europe's indo pacific strategy?
0: I think we can look at this from two levels. One of them is just First of all, that there are some of these informal kinds of activities that also play out uh in so in Europe itself. And we've seen some of this. We could even th- think of some of the speculative activities um, from Chinese companies or individuals into things like European football clubs <clears throat> or oil activities um, in in the case of, of the Czech Republic. Um, there have been a number of these cases where you basically get um, speculative or illegal activities, um, by Chinese individuals or, or companies that then have blown up and caused problems, um, in, in Europe it, itself. So that's one element. I, I still think it's much, much less uh, of a, of a major problem in, in Europe than it is in a lot of developing countries, um, that I, that I researched. But the other side of this is that from the point of view of the Indo-Pacific strategies that are being discussed at the member state and EU levels, I think that this really falls into the category of sustainability. So the EU, including through the discussions about sustainable connectivity – has really been exploring ways in which its outreach to countries in the Indo-Pacific region, but in particular in this case in, in Southeast Asia, especially poorer countries, can do more to build sustainable kinds of development opportunities on the ground in countries where China is a major actor, but also where EU countries and companies and NGOs are are active. So I think this is just an issue that needs to be on the radar screen, but largely is not when it comes to sustainable development. And I think this will be a key component of what we see discussed um, the the sort of sustainable development uh, agenda is going to be an important part of Indo-Pacific strategies again at the EU and, and member state levels, and and I really hope that some of these more informal activities are taken into account. Just because, from my own experience and the research I did, this set of issues was at the front of many people's minds uh, in the countries involved.
1: In closing, I want to bring it back to the title of your chapter, The Two Phases of the China Model. Beijing is actively exporting and promoting the China model as a better fit for many countries than Western liberal democracy. Do you think that the informal second phase of this model is also an intentional export, or is it something that China would rather not have exported outside of its borders?
0: That's a great question. So what I think, what I'm certain you would hear uh, from from Chinese officials or others trying to explain what it is that, that China is doing, especially in developing countries, is it's promoting development. They would say that uh, China's commercial engagements, its trade, its investments, its financial dealings, including the BRI with developing countries uh, in Asia, Africa, and Latin America are all about mutual um, development. Um, what they wouldn't say, but I think many people would acknowledge is that a key part of how China does development and the way the Chinese economy works is through many of these informal channels. But to the extent that those are destabilizing uh, domestically, I I think they would sort of um, be reluctant to note that it could have these destabilizing effects abroad as well. So i my own experience, there is a real desire to promote the development potential and intentions of China, but much less willingness to confront the realities of these sorts of freewheeling activities, which are really important. I think they're probably most important in Southeast Asia, but you certainly see them also. In in Africa and and Latin America and the challenges of of governing those when you have millions of Chinese citizens abroad conducting all kinds of activities again across a wide spectrum of you know illegal illegal regulated unregulated orderly and disorderly so I, I think there'd be a reluctance um, on the Chinese side to admit that this is part of the model but it absolutely is. This ends
1: our conversation on informal activities and actors as part of the China model. Matt, thank you very much for your time and your insights.
0: Thanks, Johannes. It was great talking to you.
1: Matt Ferson's chapter, The Two Phases of the China Model, the BRI in Southeast Asia, has been published in the book Global Perspectives on China's Belt and Road Initiative, edited by Florian Schneider. You can find a link to the chapter and to other works by our experts on our website, merix.org. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.
0: You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at Merrix.org.